It's time for counterculture. Are you tired of how divided we are? Let's find the peacemakers. Think everyone is mean and selfish? Let's talk to those who are helping us all be more loving and caring. Think our culture is going downhill? Let's meet those who are helping us flourish. And now your host, Jonathan Sanborn. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much to tuning in to Counterculture. Really excited for the show today. We have with us uh, James Raymond, who is the director of Al Maida Initiative, calling in from Seattle. We're super excited. Hello, James. Hey, good to be here. Oh, so thank you. We're really looking forward to getting to know you and your story and what what you're doing to be bridging the peace and peacemaking. So James is the director of the Al Maida Initiative. Uh, it's uh, it's an evangelical five hundred one c three committed to facilitating friendly yet robust discussions about worldview between Christians and Muslims. We like robust discussions. I like robust coffee, and I like robust discussions, so I guess maybe I can do both at the same time. As well as facilitating hundreds of conversations between Christians and Muslims in Seattle, James also hosts the Al-Ma'ida Initiative podcast, hosting long-form conversations about religion and politics with people from all over the world. So thank you again, James, for joining us. Oh, by the way, James is married and a father of four, almost five, ready-to-come number five children. So this is super exciting. Congratulations for your pro- prolific efforts. Well, thanks, and thank you for the great intro. You said it so well that I'm just going to uh, cut parts of that and <laughs> paste it into my own material. Yeah, just use that. There's nothing copyrighted here. I mean, once I get once I'm a big deal, maybe I'll think about it. But yeah, just use it freely. Get it out there. So no, but thank you for calling in, and we look forward to hearing about what you're all about. But before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts and hear, uh, talk this through, I want to just, we like to play a game just to kind of get to know you. We call it fake news. And so uh, I'd like, in fake news, we hear something that's true about you and then something that's not true about you. And we try to guess which, one, I try to guess which one is which. And so why don't you just say some, two things and let me see if I can guess which one is fake. Oh gosh. Okay. 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 You ready for um, this? Yes. So, my uh, I am descended from an illegitimate child of King Henry VIII of England. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, uh, and uh, the other one. Okay. Um, let's see. I, okay, I'm loosely related to uh, the um, former dictator of uh, the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos. Yeah. You're loosely related to Ferdinand Marcos. Okay, so I'm going to say you're – I think you're – you hesitated on the second one. So I'm going to say your connection to the Phil, to the Philippines is fake. Is that I fake news? You. Well, you got me? No, I got you. Oh, I, you got I, me. I, I played this game before. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. You played so, a win. I actually am <laughs> – yeah, I I do. Um, so the I found this out last year actually that my wife's uh, grandmother was born in the Philippines. Okay, and she she hadn't gone back since the sixties. So I went back to this. Uh, we went there for the first time. Okay, and I'm seeing this family reunion with Filipino high society. Right. Found out. 
and I, I'm talking to this guy for an hour about the Bible and Dragon Ball Z and all the <laughs> things I like to talk about. Right. And then somebody comes up to me and says, you know who that is, right? It's like, no idea. He says, he's the grandson of Ferdinand Marcos. So oh. we've both married into the same family. Okay, really? I like that. No, I, I had to say I judged you by the color of your skin. But it was yeah, yeah, through, I know. But through marriage, you were in, in you're in the family. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. That, so, yeah, I know. I know that was sneaky, and now none of your listeners are going to trust anything I have to say. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't resist. It was man. good. You've got skills. I'm telling you, and and I'm getting close to a 500 record. I was I was I was getting a little cocky, honestly. And now you've kind of kept me more in my place, and I appreciate that. I am um, fun fact though. I was studied seminary for a while in the Philippines. And went to a classical concert, and not knowing this, I sat right behind Imelda Marcos. So that was kind of my little brush with greatness there while I was in the Philippines. So she did not have her shoe collection, which she's well most known for with her. But it was uh, that was my brush with greatness. Um, also, fun fact: I saw Michael Jackson the like a week later. Uh, so uh, at, in concert in the Philippines. So that's another surreal time in my life. Um, Really? So, it's, it's a great place. It is a great place. I loved it. Some of the friendliest people on earth there and a uh, good, good place to study as one of the very few white people there in a seminary of about 450 people. And uh, it was a very good experience. Learned a lot. Things I wouldn't necessarily have learned in an American seminary, but absolutely fantastic experience. But enough about me. We've got a, we've got a lot to hear from you. So what, why, what about your story has given you a heart for Muslims? Well, there's there's a few layers of it. The first that I remember is 9-11. I was 11 years old. I was walking home from school, and my friend's mother ran out of their house crying. And we went in, and we saw, if I'm remembering it right, from my perception, we we just saw it right after the plane hit the first tower, and then the Mm -hmm. second plane hit while we were watching the news feed. And... At that point, I just started paying more attention to uh, the Muslim world. And honestly, as a as an 11-year-old boy, it was fun just to have a enemy. Right. That you, you grew up in the shadow of the greatest generation that went and fought the Nazis. And then you right. have Osama bin Laden with this sort of spooky outfit and, and, and sort of intimidating beard. And it's like, it fits that idea of wanting this kind of bad guy to have in your life. Right. right. And Interesting. But then... When I became a, when I, when I started taking Christianity more seriously a couple of years later, then Islam shifted from a geopolitical enemy to a theological enemy. Hmm. And, and then when I was 19, I decided to read the Quran. I made one Muslim friend. And at that point, I actually started to see them as human beings, as image bearers of God, yes. who were, were deserving of dignity and value and that I, I couldn't see human beings as my enemy. Mm. So what you was where where were you at this time? I was still in England at okay. the time, a place called Northampton where I grew up. Okay. And so was there a large Muslim population in Northampton? There was, but I didn't really know any of them. Well, I knew them kind of vaguely, but I wasn't friends with anyone. Mm-hmm. And I ended up making friends with a girl from Bangladesh as part of a college 
radio project that I decide to interview people about their different views on the end of the world and an excuse to meet people who thought yeah. differently. Yes. And she was working in a T-Mobile store. And I said, hey, can I interview you about the end of the world? And she's like, yeah, sure. And so we got coffee and we talked about it. And then she invited me to her birthday party. Then, then I moved to America and she and her friend were doing a tour of the West Coast and came and visited me in Seattle. Yes. And we had a, a lot of conversations about Christianity and Islam and everything. A lot, a lot of arguments, too. Sure. But, and then... Uh, but you could that, have arguments because it wasn't just an idea debate. It was, you had, this was a friendship. Yeah, it was. It, it really was. That, that uh, she was a real friend and we actually cared about each other's well-being. So that that was a, that was a very transformative point for me. Mm. And do you, by any chance, are you still in touch with this person? Vaguely, as much yeah. as I'm in touch with anybody in England. Sure. Yeah, I, I get that. Living, living in America feels like Narnia. <laughs> that you, I, I left when I when I didn't, wasn't really working, and then you know have all these things, get married, have kids. So every time I go back to England, it feels like stepping back through the wardrobe and being a child again. So oh, it, feels like, okay. it really feels like two different worlds. Yes. Yeah, that, that's interesting. interesting observation. Um, so, so, go ahead. So after, after meeting her, right, I went, once she went back is right when I started dating my wife. So the whole Islam thing just fell off the radar for a while. Right. But then once I was married and working, I had a lot of time to listen to audio at my job. So I decided to listen through the Islamic source materials so uh, there's something called the Hadith, which is like this encyclopedia of everything Muhammad said and did. Yes. Categorizing the topic. So I listened through that and so, just became convicted it was a very academic exercise. So I decided to crash the Muslim Student Association at UW. Yes. Didn't know, <laughs> didn't know anybody. Walked in really awkwardly partway through one of the meetings. Everyone saw me come in. But then one guy called Austin waved me over, offered me a seat, and he invited me back. And then I just kept going back, and I ended up going for six years, and I became one of the longest attending members of the Muslim Student Association at the University of Washington. That's fantastic. Wow, what a great, what an incredible experience, educational, learning, and relationally. Yeah, and it got, like, crazy, because there were so many good opportunities for friendly conversations, but it all came to a head for me, and this is when it became kind of a full-time thing, when... I went to this interfaith event on campus, and honestly, I, I hate most interfaith events because right. everyone's terrified of offending each other, so nobody ever says anything substantial. Right. But by the grace of God, this one had a terrible turnout, ends up being me and five Muslims in a room for an hour and a half. Okay. So instead of the can curriculum of how do we all be Americans together when, you know, I'm foreign, three of them were foreign, there's only two Americans in the room, they just started asking me, how do you... How can you believe that Jesus is God and man at the same time? Mm. How can you believe the Bible has been accurately preserved after 2,000 years? So after answering those questions for about 45 minutes, going back and forth, this one girl called Zara said, you know, I really want to go to church sometime, but my Christian friend never invites me. She's never been invited to church. With, yeah. with Christian, and she already has Christian friends. Already has Christian friends. Okay who never invited to church. Okay. So I said, what? Well, my wife and I go, come with us. In fact, you guys should all come with us, make it like an interfaith field trip. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, sounds good. 
I wasn't really expecting anything to happen. But three days later, the official Muslim Students Association Facebook page sent out an invite inviting everyone to come to our church. Okay. And we had 50 people RSVP, and we had, you know, it's a college RSVP. Right. We had 13 people show up, and we got lunch afterwards, and we had phenomenal conversations. And at that point, I just saw how big the opportunity was and then decided to try and find a way to make this a full-time thing. Oh, that's fantastic. So you, you're the one, you stepped into a breach that a lot of people just choose to, or just don't either have the opportunity to, or most likely willfully choose not to step into. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of it is, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure a lot of it's willfully choosing not to step into it for people. Mm-hmm. I think there's just a case that in the world we live in now, everything just sort of feels so overwhelming right? and people are just kind of drowning in their lives and they don't take the time to kind of stop and think and look for opportunities. I find a lot of people are willing to, if they're presented, hey, how about you try this? Well, so you just gave, you finally had a tangible, if people, you think if people have a tangible opportunity to do something, there's much more likelihood to get past it. It's not necessarily they're just totally set against it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my, my experience with Christians in Seattle and Muslims, I don't think most people harbor a deep hate or a deep fear or anything. It's just a case of, I don't know where to start. Right. And I find time and time again that if you give most Christians in Seattle a tangible place to start, then they'll do amazing. They'll have great relationships. They'll have amazing Mm. investments in people. And they'll have truly beautiful friendships come out of these things. Mm. It, but you, they, they just need a lot of people just need to be presented with that, that opportunity. Op- opportunity. Most people just, especially most non-ministry people, you just—it's not that they don't have time to do anything. It's just they don't have the space to think and strategize, and nobody's showing them anything. Right. Right. Excellent point. So if you're just tuning in, we have James Raymond here with the director of the Al-Maida Initiative, sharing his incredible uh, story and journey to build bridges with Muslims and forming and doing peacemaking. Uh, This is uh, Counterculture with Jonathan Sanborn. So James, uh, so now what do you see going on in the Muslim world that's encouraging to you about what you're trying to accomplish with this dialogue? So I think one thing I'm seeing in the Muslim world, especially, is that there is there's a lot of people asking really good questions about what they believe. So right. I, I think that you have a culture in the Middle East, which does stem in part from the Islamic worldview, where people have this worldview of, okay, if you're not a qualified expert, you don't have the tools to be able to learn about Islam or other religions or the world around you. Your job is to find a scholar that you trust and basically follow what that scholar says, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than doing the, the, the research yourself. Okay. And I think you have a lot of people who are, quite frankly, tired of that and are looking to really discover why they believe what they believe. And our events are full of people like that. Hmm. So if and so if we just approached this as a fearful, they're the, they're them, and we maybe uh, we just we know what we see on movies and on certain news broadcasts, 
we might just put them in another category that makes us separate. But you've chosen to say, hey, hey as a in your your faith and your as a Christian, you're saying these are people who are seeking, or many people who are asking questions, and this is a great time to start dialogue. Is that a fair assessment? It it it, it is, and and the, and the, but there's a deeper level to it too, right? And so I would make if you, where would you get of the top five countries Muslims want to immigrate to? The top five countries uh, that. I would say Canada, U.S., U.K., um, France, and Brazil. I don't know. I'm just guessing. So the first, the first three, the first three are dead on. Okay. And then I think France is France is pretty high up there. But then you'd also have Germany and Australia Germany. as well. Yes. Okay, that so makes th- sense. Think about this. You think about okay, U.S., Canada, U.K., Germany, Australia. What do those countries have in common? They mm-hmm. have the Protestant Reformation as a major part of their history, right? Yes. So in, in all in all those societies, while you wouldn't call them Christian today, there's huge parts of Christian heritage in the formation of those countries. Now, so when so if you look at our education, our law, um, limited government, freedom of expression, all those are things that we've inherited from a Christian worldview in large part. Right. So Every time somebody leaves a culture that's based in Islam or kind of Middle Eastern secularism, right? In order to in order to come to one of those countries, they're making an implicit decision. They mm-hmm. would rather live in a country inconsistently based on Christianity than they would base than they would live in the country they've come from. Mm. And if that's true, yeah then th- there's a huge, huge, huge opportunity to share this, the whole counsel of God with people and kind of explain what Jesus teaches and what that does to individuals and does to the world. Mm. So, okay, let's just say we just say we've taken the step and say uh, this makes sense. There are many, many of the Muslims have come, in, and my pr- own personal experience validates what you're saying and that many Muslims have come, and I've had – lunch with guys from Saudi. I've had dozens of uh, Muslim families over at my home, and I've so benefited from those relationships. What are some helpful mindsets for us to understand our Muslim neighbor? So I think that the first thing I would say is, as far as understanding Islam, I think one of the biggest biggest barriers to get over is, is how we think about this, right? So we tend to think of the Quran like we think of the Bible. We think that the Quran functions like the Muslim Bible. That if a Muslim wants to know answers of how to live their life, they go and they read the Quran, and then they either obey the Quran or disobey the Quran, right? And there's there's a, there's a right way to read it, there's a wrong way to read it on a on a clear right. spectrum, right? But Muslims in general don't have a faith that is rooted in the source materials, but in this huge web of scholars and community and family Mm -hmm. and when they're interacting with you they're kind of interacting on a script right and often christians may be interacting on a script as well like okay i heard uh nabil qureshi or james white or someone else say this and they say okay and, and this is what i say when i meet a muslim and we have to get beyond that script and get to deal with people as as individuals Mm -hmm. so 
one thing, if somebody wants to learn about Islam and talk to Muslims, do not assume you know any single individual. Just learn to ask good questions and listen well. Excellent. Because they're an image bearer of God with uniquely great things about them, with unique sins and unique wounds. Mm -hmm. And you have to treat them as that individual and and, and look for what those things are and take that person seriously as an image bearer of God. Right. That's excellent. That is excellent to hear. And, And Islam itself is complicated and it's diverse. It'll look very differently in Indonesia than it will in India or Saudi. You know, we... It's just there's just and or someone who grew up and and is in America in a certain you know as a, maybe a Sunni uh, might be very different than a Shia or you know so we, there's or you know so there's a lot of ways to look at Islam and not just the one way we think we know. Right, right, and take those categories, put them aside. You take ten Sunni Muslims living in the same city. Yes, you're going to get ten completely different worldviews when you speak to them. Right, because it can be as much as personality or what YouTube videos people have been watching, right? Right. That's right. And isn't that what we want for ourselves too, right? We want to not be labeled and put in boxes and categorized, correct? Right, right. Hmm. So what are we as Americans? What's our biggest blind spot? To the Muslim world? or To yeah. the Muslim worlds, yes. Um, I, I think it is this idea of, assuming it's a kind of monolithic culture, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's, that it's clear-cut. Right. I mean, there are definitely issues. There are definitely wounds. But the, one of my favorite questions to ask people is, do you think the Islamic source materials say that you should be a suicide bomber? Right. And they'll say, oh, I don't know. It says, okay, it couldn't possibly say that because there were no explosives when the Islamic source materials were written. So... You can't say, okay, you should definitely be a suicide bomber. Now, there's things we can kind of string together to kind of make the argument. But any Muslim is going to have to do that for whatever version of Islam they, they want to do. Right. So, 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 again, you can't, it's not a monolith. And the biggest mistake Americans make is seeing Islam as a monolith that is represented by Al Qaeda or ISIS. Right. Right. And, and the same way. We don't like to be judged by the monolith of maybe the worst parts of our country. We want to be fully understood and to see the good side of our culture. They, in the same way, they want to do the same. And, right. And Jesus died for Muslims, and he is he. Lo- God loves the world. We say these things, but it, when it comes down to it, we actually this is what a, this is where that lives itself out, and that we, our love. To show the love of Christ is also to show a love for our Muslim neighbors. Right. So, and the biggest felt need of the Muslim neighbors is that they just they feel afraid and isolated, and they have and if they don't stick together, that they're not going to survive. Right. And we and just by being in people's lives, they don't need money, they don't need vast amounts of resources, they just need time, attention, and hospitality, and it can make an enormous difference mm. in that community. Hmm. So g- give our listeners something really practical that they can do to start a meaningful relationship with a Muslim neighbor or coworker. This is this is a, this is a great part. But for, for most Muslims, they're used to talking about religion. So I would suggest, hey, 
if you have a Muslim co-worker that you've never talked to before, it's like, hey, I was listening to a radio show or talking to someone from my church the other day that was talking about how Christians don't understand Islam very well, and I realized I don't have any relationships with Muslims. I would love to get lunch with you and hear the kind of things that you believe and how your faith impacts your life. Would you be, I'll buy, when do you want to do it? Mm-hmm. I've never encountered someone saying no to that. Wow. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just so they just waiting for a lot of people just wait for an invitation, but it's up. It's up to us to take that initiative to step into the spot and say, "Hey, I'm willing and I'm open to to listen." Right, right. And I, I would encourage you, like any time I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody, I, tr- I I try not to say too much on the first time I meet them. What I tend to do is I will say, "Hey, I'd love to hear more about you." Then I will. I'll listen, I'll ask you questions, I'll learn. And if I feel like I have something to say, I'll pray about it, I'll think about it, and then I'll kind of text them back saying, hey, I love getting lunch with you the other days. And I was thinking about thinking and praying about our conversation, and I just had some things that I wanted to share from a biblical worldview, wanted to be interested in hearing. That. This has been a great discussion. Unfortunately, I have to cut us off. This I would love to probably could talk for another couple hours on this. James, you've been a great guest. I've loved hearing about your ministry the Al Maida Initiative. Uh, do a search. Uh, do you want to uh, for the uh, under our webpage, and you can find out more. Uh, let's let's show the love of Christ to those to our Muslim neighbors. Thank you again for joining us, James. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening today. Counterculture is made possible by Care Portal, helping local churches help children and families in crisis. Sign up you and your church today at careportal.org.